Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, your church and for this freedom we have to come together and to worship you and to hear your word proclaimed and preached to us. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, this time would be uh, productive for us and that we would um, continue to develop our understanding of your word and of the teaching of your word, and that also that you would work this truth deeply into our hearts um, and that uh, it would change the way that we live. Um, We pray that you'd give us clarity of thought this morning and that you'd be here with us and that you would teach us. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. We are, if you remember from last week, um, continuing to deal with the doctrine of baptism. And we're in the, the Bible section of this part of the series where we're looking at major biblical texts that have um, some lessons to teach us about the sacraments. And so last week we had looked at uh, Noah, um, God's covenant with Noah, and the rainbow. Uh, the rainbow being a covenant sign, and we had some, some things that we learned there. Um, and now today we're going to be looking at Genesis 17, and we're going to be looking at the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham, which was circumcision. All right. So what I want to do, just to kick us off here, is I want to read for you from Genesis 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. So I'll read those for us here, and then I will um, break it down, and we'll get into it. So Genesis 17, starting at verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, Both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. 
I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come out from her. All right, well, that is the, uh, basically in Genesis 17 here, we have the final uh, declaration, the final promises, and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant given, okay? Now, this is not uh, the only passage of scripture where God makes a covenant with Abraham. Um, The beginnings of this covenant are found in Genesis chapter 12, and then you have more details about this covenant given in Genesis 15, and now in 17, we have the final promises and the sign given, okay? So we're not looking at all of the Abrahamic covenant. We're just looking at a certain part of it here, uh, the, the final part, particularly the part that talks about the sign of the covenant. And you'll remember why this is important when we're talking about baptism, why we should be looking at you know, covenant signs in the Old Testament. And that's because we believe as Reformed people that the sacraments of the New Testament that we have now, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are covenant signs. Right? They are covenant signs. And so if we want to understand how baptism is functioning and how the Lord's Supper is functioning, we need to look at how other covenant signs have functioned in the life of God's people. And so we're going back to the beginning here. We're going back to the covenant with Noah and looking at the sign that we did last week, the sign of the rainbow. And now we're looking at the covenant sign that God gave to Abraham here in Genesis 17. All right? And this is part of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And you remember last week we dealt with the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah. And all of these different covenants that we're looking at, right? the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, and so on, these are all essentially sub-covenants of the bigger covenant that we call the covenant of grace. Right? And you remember this, we talked about this last week. The covenant of grace is all about Jesus, either pointing forward to him or pointing back, because it's by grace in this covenant that we are saved. Uh, by the grace of what Jesus has done for us, right? dying for our sin, uh, giving us his righteousness, and so on. So all of these covenants here, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, they are all part of this covenant of grace. And for the, the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham and the rest of the covenants in the Old Testament, their primary function is to point forward to the coming of Christ. And so we're going to look today at the Abrahamic covenant, and then we're going to look at the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That's basically our two sections this morning. So the Abrahamic covenant, um, as we're going to look at it this morning, is found here in Genesis 17, and it's uh, the first eight verses. This is where God is laying out the promises that he is making to Abraham. And remember, this is really important because if you'll remember... You know, Sarai, his wife, or Sarah, as she's later renamed in this passage, she's barren. She can't have any children. And God, way back a few chapters in Genesis, earlier in Abraham's life, promised Abraham that he would give Abraham a son. And that Abraham's descendants would be, you know, as great as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens and that sort of thing. Like, he's going to have this massive descendants. These nations are going to come forth from him. But his wife is barren, and he doesn't have any children. So Abraham, at the beginning of Genesis 17 here, is experiencing a kind of crisis of faith. He's been waiting for years for God to do something, and God hasn't done anything yet. And God, in his grace, comes to Abraham here in verse 1, and he says, I am God Almighty. 
That is, Abraham, if you've had any doubts about my ability to fulfill the promises that I made to you, those doubts should be dispelled. Because I am God Almighty. I can do this. And so what God does in these preceding verses here is he is going to repeat the covenant promises that he made to Abraham. And here are some of those, some of those promises. He says in verse 2 that this covenant, he reminds Abraham, this covenant is between me and you. I made this commitment. I made these promises. He says in verse 4 and 5 that he will make Abram the father of of a multitude of nations. And that's why he renames Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, because Abraham means father of a multitude. This is the promise. You're going to have a multitude of nations coming. There's going to be so many descendants coming forth from you. I promise that I'm going to do this. You're going to be the father of kings. These nations are going to come forth from you. Great men like David and Solomon are going to come forth from you. These are massive promises for someone who's a sojourner in a land. Uh, Abraham's not a king. He's not, I mean, he's a very wealthy, rich man, but he's not a king. These are amazing promises to him. And furthermore, God says in verse 7 that all of Abraham's descendants are going to be included in these covenant promises. That they're going to be a part of this covenant that God's making with Abraham. All of his descendants. He's making it not just with Abraham, but with everyone who's going to come forth from him. And then God says in verse 8, here's the other part of the promise. So you've got the first part of the promise, right? You've got all these descendants coming forth from Abraham. And then you've got the second part of the promise. In verse 8, God will give land to Abraham and to his descendants. This is coming up in verse 5. No, sorry, not verse 5, verse 8. And I will give to you, here's what it says in the scripture, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, that is, all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there's two things, two primary things that God is promising to Abraham here. All of these descendants, and then the land of Canaan. That's what he's promising here. Now, this has led some people who exegete this passage to come to the conclusion that this is all that God promised to Abraham. All that God promised to him was physical descendants and the land of Canaan, the land of Israel that his descendants later received. But that is not the only thing that God's promising here. Because if you were to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, which I won't have you do, but I just want to read for you a piece of what the author of Hebrews tells us about the Abrahamic covenant. Because when the author of Hebrews looks back and looks at these promises that God is making to Abraham, the author of Hebrews is not saying, you know, all that God promised was just physical land and physical descendants. No, this covenant is actually pointing to something greater. Listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 11, starting with verse 8. By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place and he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, Hebrews is notoriously hard to follow sometimes with its logic, and like it requires a lot of brain power to follow exactly what's being said. But here, I think, it's, it's pretty clear when you're looking at it that what the author of Hebrews is saying is that when God made the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would give him the land of Canaan, that that was not the final fulfillment of the promise. In fact, that wasn't even primarily what was being promised. Rather, the land of Canaan was a type. It was a shadow of the true land that was being promised to Abraham. And what the author of Hebrews says here is that this land is a heavenly city, not an earthly city. What God was promising to Abraham was not specifically the land of Canaan, although he did promise that and he did give him that. But what that was pointing to primarily, what the promise was really about, was the spiritual city, the heavenly city, the one that God is preparing for all of us that we're going to go live in one day. The final city, the new heavens and the new earth, the real promised land, the true promised land. That's the land that, that the author of Hebrews says God was promising to Abraham. And that's the land that we're told that Abraham was looking forward to. He wasn't primarily looking forward to Canaan, although he was because that was part of the promise. But Canaan was foreshadowing the true land that God had promised to Abraham, which was the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly city. You see that? So the Abrahamic covenant is not just about the physical land of Israel, but it's also about the spiritual land of Israel that we all get to be a part of in the new heavens and the new earth, right? the new promised land, the greater promised land. And now it's not just that, that this promise that God made to Abraham was about a heavenly city, because it was. But Paul makes it clear in Galatians chapter 3 when he looks back on these promises that God is making to Abraham, that the descendants of Abraham are not even just a multitude of physical people. But rather, what Paul points out in Galatians 3 is that when God promises Abraham offspring, Paul says, hey, if you look at the Hebrew, the word for offspring there is singular, not plural. And Paul says, that shows us that yes, Abraham's physical descendants are in view here, But the primary promise that's being promised here when God says Abraham's going to receive an offspring 
is not about all of the various peoples that come from him, but it's actually about a certain particular offspring, a certain particular descendant. And Paul says that descendant that this promise has in view is the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You see that? So on a, on a certain level, when God promises Abraham descendants and land, he's promising him the Israelite nation and the land of Canaan. But the greater level of the promise, the more greater fulfillment of this promise that God makes to him is about the person of Jesus coming through the line of Abraham and the heavenly city that God has promised to his people. This is how the New Testament authors look back on this covenant and they see this covenant is about Jesus and what he has done for those who walk in the faith of Abraham. Okay? So right from the get-go here as we're looking at this Abrahamic covenant, we need to see that this is a covenant about Christ. And now, yes, it's about the physical land of Israel. Yes, it's about the nation of Israel coming forth from Abraham. But all of those things are shadows of the true fulfillment, which is Jesus and the heavenly city. Okay? That's what this promise is primarily about. All right. So that's the promise. That's what God is promising to Abraham here. And that's what the author of Hebrews says that Abraham was looking forward to, was the coming of Christ. So now, in verses uh, 9 through following of this passage we have the sign of the covenant being given. All right, let me read for you just a couple of verses here. Verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now notice this very interesting language that we have going on here. I think this is just really fascinating. In verse 11, God says, circumcision is the sign of the covenant. You see that? This shall be the sign of the covenant, circumcision. But in verse 10, he says, this is the covenant, circumcise. Notice the two ways that, he, that, that God speaks about circumcision. On the one hand, it is the covenant. On the other hand, it's the sign of the covenant. Now, this point of, the, of God so identifying the covenant and the sign of the covenant is something that we're going to return to later on in this series. So file that one away. So we're going to come back to this passage later when we uh, deal with it in more of the, the theology side. Um, But that's going to be really important. You notice how central the sign is in the covenant. God's not saying, here's the sign of the covenant. Now, you know, just forget about it. It doesn't really matter. No, he's saying, this is part of the covenant. This is something that's very important. You need to take this sign seriously. This is my covenant, circumcised. Very important. So it's not something we dismiss. It teaches us the importance of covenant signs. They're not something you just dispel with. They're not something you set aside as being unimportant. They're central to the life of God's people. So we need to keep this in mind here. But anyway, he says, this is the sign of the covenant, circumcise. And then he goes on to describe that this circumcision, uh, how the circumcision is to take place, right? You circumcise infants eight days old, male infants eight days old. 
and so on. Now, so we've got the promises. The promise is, of course, about the descendants in Canaan, but it's primarily about Jesus and the heavenly city. And then God says, here's the sign. Now, you remember what a sign of a covenant is supposed to do. It's supposed to signify the promises. And it helps us with our assurance of the promises. We saw that with Noah and the rainbow last week. So, what is the meaning of circumcision? What's the meaning of this covenant sign? Why does it matter to us? Well, here's what circumcision does not mean. Okay? Some people have said, well, you know, circumcision in the Old Testament is a sign of being an ethnic Jew. You'll, you'll hear people say that sometimes, especially um, uh, Baptists will love to make this claim. A circumcision is a sign of being an ethnic Jew. There's really no spiritual uh, level to circumcision. Uh, at least if there is, that's not primary. The main purpose of circumcision is to show that you are simply a physical descendant of Abraham. Okay? That's what they will say. Now, part of the problem with that is, first of all, dealing with the promises of the covenant, because if you remember, this is a sign of the covenant, and the covenant itself is promising Jesus. That is, it's promising something spiritual. It's not promising something that has specifically related to, to Jewish people. But Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 4 that circumcision is not something that's just about being a physical Jew. Rather, circumcision, he says, this is Paul, the apostle, in Romans, in Scripture, saying circumcision is a sign and a seal of righteousness by faith. Circumcision is a sign and seal of righteousness by faith. Now, we'll come back and look at what Paul means by that later on. But the point that I want you to get is that Paul is saying circumcision is not about being an ethnic Jew. Circumcision is profoundly spiritual. Its meaning is spiritual. It's a sign that is given to those who walk in the faith of Abraham. A sign and seal of righteousness by faith. Circumcision is not about being an ethnic Jew. Circumcision is profoundly spiritual. We'll come back to that um, next week because we're going to look at circumcision in the New Testament next week and, and um, deal with some more details like that. But anyway, circumcision is not, not a sign of being an ethnic Jew. Rather, circumcision is a sign of the spiritual realities promised in the covenant. And firstly, firstly what, this is, what circumcision is doing here, okay? the reason why God uses Circumcision as the sign of this covenant is because, you remember, when he promises Jesus to Abraham, he is promising Jesus as a descendant of Abraham. That is, in order for Jesus to come about and be born eventually in history, it's going to be through a long line of the process of reproduction. right? Because Jesus is going to be a descendant of Abraham. And so it makes perfect sense that when God gives a sign of this promise, and he says, the Messiah is going to come through reproduction, yet here's the sign of the covenant. It's going to be applied to the male reproductive organ. And I guarantee you, Abraham never forgot this sign. He always remembered this. It was always in his face. He saw it frequently, daily, as a reminder 
through reproduction, the Messiah will come as a descendant of yours. And all Jews, all of those people who followed in Abraham, received this sign, them and their children, because it was through this long line of reproduction the Messiah was going to come. You can see why this sign works so well in that way. But that's not the only thing that the sign was working for. The sign also uh, signified, we can see this in other places in the Old Testament, that the sign was, of circumcision was signifying cleansing. That it was a signifying a cutting away of sin. We can even see this um, in, uh, let's see, where is this show? Verse 14, I believe. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And there's a play on words there because, of course, circumcision requires a cutting off. And so Israel was to set itself aside. These descendants of Abraham were to set themselves aside from the rest of the pagan, unbelieving world. They were to cut themselves off. And so this is a sign of cleansing, of purification, of separation from the unclean world. Now, one last point to bring up about circumcision that we need to recognize, and that is, you notice that circumcision, even though Paul calls it a sign and seal of righteousness by faith, was not simply given to Abraham. Right? God commands that it be given to Abraham and to his household. See that? Abraham and his household. In fact... Not only is it given to Abraham and to his household, at least the adults in the household, but the covenant sign is given to Abraham and to the members of his household who are eight days old. So you could, if you will allow me to paraphrase this section, God is basically saying, Abraham, be circumcised, you and your household. And Abraham was circumcised, he and his whole household. Now, that's going to sound very similar to some events that we find in the New Testament, where baptism comes into play in the New Covenant. And we find all of these accounts of he was baptized, he and his whole household. She was baptized, she and her whole household. This is the same idea happening here. Now, yes, it doesn't explicitly say in the New Testament that there were eight-day-old infants or something in the homes of these people who are being baptized in their households. But... Any person familiar with the Old Testament understanding and growing up in the practice of circumcision of not just them but of their children, they would instantly be thinking of this same thing. Be circumcised, you and your household. Be baptized, you and your household. The same idea is at work. And notice also, just in, in, as we finish up here, circumcision itself is not guaranteeing that the child who's receiving it is saved. Because you'll notice that not only does Isaac, Abraham's son, receive circumcision, but Ishmael receives circumcision. Ishmael receives the sign as well. And yet the scripture tells us that he became a wild donkey of a man. So the sign itself does not guarantee salvation. But you see, the sign is still commanded as a sign and seal of righteousness by faith. It is commanded to be applied to believing parents and to their children.
I hope you see this is going to have massive implications for how we're thinking about baptism and the things that are going to start showing up in the New Testament following these same lines. This is why I say it's so important to understand what's going on in the Old Testament because it is the foundation for all the things that are coming in the New Testament. Now, I'm not saying everything in the Old Testament is exactly the same as what it is in the New. There are certainly changes. But we still see the fundamental same patterns happening. All right? All right, we'll stop there for today. Next week, we're going to be continuing to look at circumcision in other places of Scripture, especially in the New Testament. And so I'm excited to do that. We've got one minute before I actually have to stop. Do you guys have any questions briefly before we wrap up? Yes, sir. Yeah, next week. Yeah, that's right. So Robert's pointing out that there's some verses in Galatians 3 that would be really helpful to buttress this argument. And uh, we'll, we'll look at those next week. I've got those planned because I'm looking at circumcision in the New Testament next week. And I think that will be helpful to continue to develop this idea. Uh, any other questions or comments? All right. Well, if not, then let's, uh, let's close in prayer. And I'm, uh, I'm excited to continue to look at this with you guys next week. So we will do that. Oh, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the sacraments, God. Um, we, uh, we know this is a difficult subject. It requires a lot of careful study of your word. And, uh, Lord, I pray that you'd continue to help us do that. Um, uh, show us of our errors, um, but show us also what your word teaches. And, uh, Lord, give us humility, but also um, give us clarity of mind as we seek to do this. Um, pray that it would be uh, strengthening for our faith uh, to see how your covenant signs work for us. And um, Lord, I pray now that you would prepare us to hear the preaching of your word this morning and to sing praises and to worship you. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.